Today's episode is brought to you by Maria Jose Ferrada's How to Turn into a Bird, a novel that beautifully details the life and lessons of an unconventional man and the boy who loves him. Set in Santiago, Chile, the novel follows 12-year-old Miguel, who's enchanted by his Uncle Ramon's unusual job to take care of a Coca-Cola billboard by the highway, and his even more peculiar decision to make the billboard his new home. As he visits his uncle in his perch, above it all, Miguel wonders if his uncle has lost his mind, as everyone in the neighborhood says. Or is Ramon the only one who can see things as they really are? Says Megan McDowell, With all the brutal simplicity of a fairy tale, Maria Jose Ferrada lays bare the blind and violent intolerance that reigns on the precarious outskirts of an unequal society. A deceptively simple tale in a sensitive translation by Elizabeth Breyer. This book is a gift. How to Turn into a Bird is out on December 6th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin our conversation with poet, performance artist, and translator Soako Nakayasu, I wanted to begin with a brief preface or orientation that if you know Sawako's work, or if you're a lover of or curious about translation, you probably don't need to hear. But if you aren't familiar with Sawako's work, and are mainly coming to this episode wanting to hear her discuss her latest collection of poetry, and wondering why, for the first third of the discussion, for the first hour, we talk mainly about her work in translation, her work as a quote-unquote rogue translator, the way she is really deeply reimagining what translation is, or perhaps showing us more clearly what it has always been. It's you I want to speak to if you're coming to hear Sawako speak about her poetry, only to say, and simply to say, that as you'll discover when we get to the discussion of Sawako's poetry for the bulk of the conversation, you'll realize that you really can't understand it without understanding her relation to translation and her relation to performance. And the more you spend with any of these three in Sawako's back catalog, the more they inform the other two. And the questions that animate her work in all three are also questions that she has in the world, one she's confronting on the level of language, about power, between nations, between languages, between cultures, about questions of self and selfhood and identity in relation to authorship and originality, but also in relation to desire, in relation to gender and race. And she makes generative and often revelatory connections between queer theory and translation, translation and poetry, poetry and performance, performance and identity, to just scratch the surface. In other words, when you look back at the time we were talking about Sawako's incredibly unique translation practices, you will realize from that vantage point that we were also talking about her poems, poetry, time, space, self, and so much more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community of listener supporters. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode, and today's is a particularly robust one. 
every supporter can join in the collective brainstorm of who to invite in the coming years. And there's a wealth of other potential rewards and benefits from rare collectibles to writing consultations from past guests, from becoming an early reader for Tin House to the bonus audio, which includes bonus material from many of the people mentioned today, from Forrest Gander to Rosemary Waldrop to Gabrielle Seville, as well as translation-focused bonus material from Arthur Z and many of our most iconic translators, including Megan McDowell, Emma Ramadan, and Beverly B. Brahek. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Sawako Nakayasu. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, translator, and performance artist Sawako Nakayasu. Born in Japan, Sawako studied music composition at the University of California, San Diego, and earned her MFA in poetry at Brown University, where she's now herself on faculty in the Department of Literary Arts. She has co-edited the anthology A Trans-Pacific Poetics and is co-editing a forthcoming anthology of 20th century Japanese poetry coming out with New Directions. She also served as editor for Factorial Press and founded their offshoot, Rogue Factorial. And, and while Sawako is one of our foremost translators, the quote-unquote Rosemary Waldrop of Japan, as Forrest Gander once referred to her, she is also somewhat of a rogue translator, someone who increasingly explores different ways to be quote-unquote true to work, who both expands and explodes notions of faithfulness to a text, who both expands and explodes notions of translation itself, perhaps most notably in her iconic manifesto from Ugly Duckling Press, Say Translation is Art. Or consider that she was both the translator of the collected poems of Chika Sagawa, for which she won the Penn Award in Poetry and Translation, but was also the author of Mouth Eats Color, Sagawa Chika Translations, Anti-Translations, and Originals, which includes poems in five languages, several alternate translations of the same poem, and retranslated pieces from authors that Chika Sagawa had once herself translated into Japanese. Nakayasu has translated Tatsumi Hijikata's Buto Dance Notations, published as Costume on Fas, a primer of darkness for young boys and girls. 
Takashi Hirade's For the Fighting Spirit of the Walnut, for which she received a Penn Translation Fund Award and garnered the Best Translated Book Award from 3%, as well as the selected works of Yi Sang, a collective effort of Soako and translators Don Miche, Joyelle McSweeney, and Jack Jung. Soako's appeared on Japanese television as a poetry judge, and her performance pieces are often in conversation with her poetry. For instance, her 2014 poetry collection, a sequence of prose poems called The Ants, and her multiple-year project Insect Country, which produced 100 poems, a collaborative book defacement, an open poetry studio, several chapbooks, and multiple performances, some with dance and poetry, and some with improvisational scores and insect orchestras that included performers as dragonflies, dung beetles, crickets, cockroaches, and more. Her 2020 poetry collection from Wave Books, Some Girls Walk Into the Country They Are From, written as a response to her return to the United States in 2017, is a book that invites us to examine our complicity in reinforcing conventions, literary and otherwise. And again, a poetry collection that also continues to radicalize notions of translation, both as process and product. The book has seven collaborator translator women engaging with and transforming Sawako's book. The book is multilingual, English, Japanese, French, Korean, sometimes in the same poem. Some of the poems are self-aware of themselves as translations or even diss the quality of previous translations encountered in the book. And Sawako Nakayasu is here today to talk about her latest book of poetry, Pink Waves from Omnidon, coming this January, a book that brings together her practices of poetry, of performance, of translation, and of collaboration into a single one-of-a-kind project. Fred Moten says of Pink Waves, In a deliberate lyricism of regathering, tethering, and receding precedence, in a perpetual canon that keeps spilling and sifting and replenishing what feels like dancing, in a series of breaks weaving wave and snap into writing that listens, Sawako Nakayasu takes the measure of the enjoyment we derive from sensing and making sense of this wasteland of bandwidth and access. Pink Waves is a delicate instrument. Its spare beauty picks up everything. And Banu Kapil adds, Nakayasu's Pink Waves is an experience of questions becoming artifacts. The speaker asks, how will I locate expansiveness in touch? By dreamlight, a reader is trained. By the speaker in a process of listening that's both a pledge of silence and the recognition that we come to a limit and stop where it fits. Is this genre trouble? Nakayasu has written a book a writer could read, orienting to the desk, to the passing moment in turn. This is grounding. This is beautiful. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sawako Nakayasu. Thank you so much, David. It's a great pleasure to be here. It feels like it's by design. 
that it's hard to know where the different elements of writing begin and end for you. When is something writing versus translation? Translation versus performance? Performance versus writing? What you yourself have contributed to a given work versus a collaborator within the same work? In a way, this calls into question many things about, I think, the notion of originality, of what creativity is, of what performativity is, and what is and isn't translation. Your latest collection, Pink Waves, is, I think, a great example of this. But I'd like to start before Pink Waves, as I think that if we explore some of what you've been asking in your work prior to it, that will really be able to make the discussion of pink waves richer and deeper. So let's start with your your award-winning collected poems of Chika Sagawa, which, at least on the surface, is a more normative translation alongside Mouth Eats Color, um, which <laughs> we might call more in line with your notion of rogue translation, perhaps the best example of it. Could you speak to these two projects and how they're in conversation with each other for you and what they might be saying to each other um, when we hold them next to each other? Thanks for that question, David. I really enjoy the fact that those two books get to live side by side. I guess one thing I can say to begin with is that they inhabit different scales of time, labor, effort, and production, let's say. The official book, the collected, the, you know, the one with a real publisher, that one was a big effort in terms of how much time and energy and drafts and revisions and agonizing kind of in the traditional way that we translate poetry. So it took me something like 10 years, obviously not nonstop, but it took it took that much time for me to kind of digest and understand the context in which she was writing. So the the particular moves that she made had to be thought about in the context of what she was doing in relation to Japanese poetry as it was developing in the 1920s when she wrote. So it was difficult and challenging for multiple reasons. And I can I can talk about that more, but I guess to stay on your question in thinking about how Mouth Eats Color happened, it was kind of in the middle of translating the longer book. I was holding these questions and components that I felt were difficult to translate. For example, some of her poetry itself is multilingual and it uses words that are English or otherwise foreign. But if I'm translating it into English, then you have the problem of, I can't translate into English something that's already in English. You either leave it the same or you find some alternative. Just that question kind of opened up a, a different question of thinking about the different ways I might approach what I personally found interesting about her work. I, 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 I wanna say that, but I also don't want that to be the central thing about what I say about my mouth eats color because there were so many things going on in that particular moment that I wrote that book, which was thinking about um, multiple things, multiple aspects of books and translation and publishing, and even just how long it takes to get from an idea to a product. It's 
it tends to be slow, it tends to take years before you have a book from an idea to the product. Whereas if I'm doing performance art, I can have an idea and I can actually do it that day or the next day, or, you know, there's a, there's a different relationship to time and scale. And so I, I had an idea, I'm trying to remember now, I've probably written about this somewhere, but I had an idea to do this book. And then somebody, I must have posted it on Facebook and somebody jokingly said, hey, can you do that in a month? Because I want to use it in my class next semester. And I thought, can I? Maybe. And I <laughs> kind of jumped in and I, I, I decided I was going to make a book in the course of a month. And that idea coming from um, my interest in and relationship to durational performance art so um, people like Teching Shea and Linda Montana, who would do something for a year, do some small action repetitively, repeatedly over the course of a year, I found really moving those aspects of how we engage time and our lived life and the making of art were all converging in interesting ways in that moment. There's something about money, too, about the economy of producing a book. And I had not that long ago, I had moved to Japan after growing up in the US. And when I started meeting Japanese poets, and they started telling me, I don't know why they were telling me this, because I don't think I asked specifically, but they started telling me how much it costs to publish a book. And it would be, you know, on the scale of you could buy a nice car for that amount of money. And the books were beautifully produced. But I was just learning more and more about art in Japan, contemporary art in Japan, and the degree to which it was a pay to play kind of culture. And you'd go into a gallery exhibit, and there's somebody sitting there. And later on, I would realize it was the artist sitting there. And then later, I would realize it was the artist who had paid for that time in the gallery. And that there's, there's an economy of the artist having to have the economic resources to produce their work until they were big enough to do otherwise. So I wanted to make a book that didn't cost money. <laughs> and, and that was also the Rogue publishing part. Yeah. I invented Rogue Factorial. So I had created Factorial Press out of my kind of youthful exuberance and wanting to publish books and a journal. And it was all about collaboration at first. And then when I had this project, the Mouthies Color Book, I um, I didn't want to be dependent on a publisher. So I said, okay, I'm going to publish it myself and invent this publisher called Rogue Factorial. And I've only published two books, mine and another one. So it was invented just to serve the purpose of publishing my own book. So we can think about these two books as being different in time and perhaps an effort, different in the sense that One's going through traditional publishing venues and one's ignoring and also creating new opportunities within publishing. Um, but I want to ask another question, maybe that's more specific to translation around the two books too. Because you mentioned, for instance, Sagawa's uh, poems that are in Japanese that might have an English title. And how do you translate an English title that's originally in English into English? And do you? And how do you indicate that it was in a different language? But there are other even more complicated translated questions for her. Like you've mentioned that the poem Promenade has a title in katakana, which is the phonetic script used in Japanese for foreign words. 
but that it's clearly in this case based on the French pronunciation of the word, not the English translation. And you say in relation to this, quote, what am I to do? Add a footnote to every instance. Art and the literary art that is translation is not about saying or doing or explaining it all or all at the same time. I figure there's plenty of space in academic publication for that sort of discourse. And then you go on to talk about how you largely had to lose this aspect of her work in the collected poems. Uh, the A lot of the aspects of her own playing with multi lingualisms. And I wondered if this loss there is related to the multilingual explosion in Mouth Eats Color. If if Mouth Eats Color also, among the other things you've mentioned, emerges in some ways from what can't be captured of her in the collected works, that it is a foregrounding, an aspect of her as a poet and those poems that uh, is not in the collected poems. It is very much so. Yeah. And thank you for bringing us back to that. I guess I want to speak to her community at the time, too, that there was a lot of translation in the poetic circles that she was engaged with. And she herself was translating from English into Japanese. And um, and the language itself, the Japanese language, was in a moment of flux. And so... A couple decades earlier, there had been a big movement to standardize Japanese English. Um, the sort of generation of poets preceding her had brought poetry to a vernacular place. Um, there were all these changes that she was um, influenced by, but also moving in her own direction with. And the the part about her particular use of foreign vocabulary in her poetry was that it was so very jarring to to see particular words that also for um, a contemporary reader, partly because the contemporary Japanese language is full of foreign words, but they're not the same foreign words that were in Sagawa's poetry because some of them just didn't stick. Some of them had different words or they just evolved in different ways. So they capture, it's like a little um, time capsule of the diction of the moment. And then of course it's specific to her. So that was one aspect of it. It is also my desire to foreground Sagawa as a translator. Um, so that's partly why I included some of the poems that she had translated into Japanese. And, you know, there are interesting discussions around what a good translation is. And sometimes people look at translations that were done around that time when there was so much translation activity. It was just really an explosion of translation. And um, and you would look at that now and sometimes be very critical of it because it seems wrong, it seems off, it seems to be missing X, Y, Z. And it, in a way, it's it wasn't so much the point because people were consuming literature from foreign cultures and languages in an act like in as part of the process of developing their own writing and opening up their horizons in writing so that's that's part of it there's also something about her stance as a poet and as a translator and as a writer where it it just felt very different from the normative relationships that we 
today have in terms of poetry, in terms of whether you're writing your own original work or you're writing a translation of somebody else. You know, there's a very large power dynamic that's inherent to it. And just this summer when I got my hands on a copy of Sagawa's translation of James Joyce, which was actually the only thing she was able to publish before she died, and I looked at the cover and it says chamber music, it's the title of the book, and in tiny letters it says James Joyce, and then below that in much bigger font says Sagawachka. <laughs> so it wow. was like, I don't know who made those decisions, but there's there's a certain way in which that inferiority complex almost didn't exist. And even in that actual translation of Joyce, which was in, you know, these rhyming verse, she took that rhyming verse and decided like, well, that doesn't work in Japanese and I'm just gonna write prose poetry. And she didn't call it that, but that's what it was. And and there's a way in which there was a certain freedom and intention around translation that felt very different from, it feels different from what we do now. And I think um, Sagawa herself, the way she approached it feels different from what people were doing then too. And maybe it's not um, correct to characterize her as representing the times. Cause I think she in her moment was also translating slightly differently as everybody else, um, which may have had more in common with what we do now. Well, let me, stay with that another minute. Let's stay one more beat with this juxtaposition of these two books. Um, Cause there's something that I imagine about these two books together. And I don't know if you also feel this way, but I wondered if mouth eats color as a project is also suggesting that so-called normative translations like the ones in the collected poems that you translated and normative translations more generally speaking, if, those normative translations are actually far weirder and in a way more original than we think that by foregrounding yourself as a translator in the rogue book, by troubling the relationship between the writer and the translator, that you're saying that you are, that what you are doing more invisibly in the collected poems is actually much more inventive or more generative or more creative and more mysterious than it than how translation is typically characterized in the discourse if the act of translation is even in the discourse at all that i i came away with that looking at the two books together but i don't know if that is something of what you're doing if mouth eats color is is actually also saying among all the other things you suggest that really if you were to lean into these normative translations the more you spend time with them the weirder the choices and and the the more questions about creativity versus uh, transcription um, come to the fore i like your suggestion of the conventional one perhaps being the weird one and as you were saying that the thing that it made me think was that mouth eats color in some way feels more honest to me. It feels more like a document. Like if you were to go the road of documentary poetics or a documentary film, something where you're you're capturing things that are slices of elements that actually happened. So for example, in Mouth Eats Color, there's one poem translation that's handwritten and 
the reason why it's handwritten is because I was working in my office, but the school, the campus had a fire drill and everybody had to evacuate. But I was in the middle of my, you know, month long race to do this, to do this book. And so I, I, I didn't want to stop. So I had to leave the building and go work on some picnic table and I was away from my computer. So I just kept working by hand and it just slid itself in as a document of that moment. So it's a question of what we hold up as the best or the the good or the official or even more sinister authoritative is one out of many for me. And I, I do that because I participate in normative culture in many in many ways. And I think it's, it's a counter it it I I wouldn't I wouldn't like vote for one or the other but I think that when you position when you invert the structure and say okay maybe that official one is the strange one and this is the one that's more honest it's more honest in the sense that translation is just one reader transmitting their reading of a poem and if you expand that notion you can come around to every moment in time when a poem is being read by a human and whatever is going on in your mind is so complex and so full of misinterpretation or mistranslation it's so incomplete but it's very much true like if we were able to just slice into your mind as you read a poem and that was the translation that's something that's true in a very different definition of true when we think about you know faithfulness and a translation. Okay, so thinking about this translation of Sagawa Chika of James Joyce, where her name is bigger than James Joyce's on the cover, I, I wanted to ask you about your relation to the notion of an original text and perhaps originality more broadly, because it seems like your work often unmoors us from an orientation toward the original. For instance, in some girls walk into the country they are from, we sometimes encounter a poem, let's say in French, and it indicates it has been translated from a quote-unquote original, but it's an original that we haven't yet encountered in the book and that we will only encounter later after having encountered the translation. And conversely, we encounter poems in English in that book, but are told that they were translated in English. Um, and of course, you are only one of many people moving these texts between one language and the other in this book and other books. So one question is about originality and original texts and what you're doing in relationship to so-called original texts. But I also had this, I guess, more metaphysical question about it too. And uh, in, the, in an episode of Crafting with Ursula, where the Beowulf translator, Maria Devana Headley, was the guest, and we were looking together at Le Guin as a translator. I quote from something that Le Guin wrote in an essay called Reciprocity of Prose and Poetry, where she says, Translation is entirely mysterious. Increasingly, I have felt that the act of writing is itself translation, or more like translating than it is like anything else. What is the other text, the original, I have no answer. I suppose it is the source, the deep sea where ideas swim, 
and one catches them in nets of words and swings them, shining into the boat, where in this metaphor, they die and get canned and eaten in sandwiches. Um, so I guess I wondered, here we have Le Guin asserting that writing is close to translating for her. The act of writing, like writing without an original text, is also somehow translating from a mysterious original text. I wanted to put that alongside my more specific question of what you're doing with the reader by displacing us from original texts and putting these intermediary or so-called intermediary texts between us and them. I usually shy away from questions about the audience, but because of the way you framed it, I'm interested in this last question you ask of what I'm doing with the reader. I think there are a couple of potential outcomes for the reader, but one of them, one of several, is that it releases the reader from a sense of necessarily knowing or understanding all of it if you don't read and understand all the languages. But I think even I don't understand all of it per se, because some of some of the processes and the things that I did to land at a particular poem or particular translation, it's not even legible to me, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say about my own work, right? But that's important. And I'm gonna try to circle this back around to what you were saying about originality. There's an experience that I have felt in my own relationship to the Japanese language, which is my first language because I was born in Japan and I lived there until I was six. So until the age of six, that, six, that was the only language I had. And then I grew up in the US and was educated in English. So my English naturally got stronger. But then when I went back to Japan, this is 2002, I was an adult but just barely, barely educated in Japanese. So I could read and write, but not that well. I did not receive nearly as much education in Japanese as I did in English. And not only that, there's a function of the way Chinese characters operate in the Japanese language, where you can understand things to like this great gradation of ability so you can you can understand things that you can't say you might not be able to read everything but you can get the idea and you get the idea to a various degree so i had this experience of having a language and not having it and knowing a language and not knowing it or not knowing it as well as one might um, in a different context so i think in in a sense i'm interested in poetry also as a space where you can't know it all, and why should you try to? And I think to some degree, I'm I'm thinking about the 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 typical way that poetry is taught in like primary education in the US, for example, where here's a poem, let's think about what it means, what these are symbols for, we unpack it as if it's some puzzle to be unlocked and decoded. And if I want poetry to be something else, something other than that, and I want it to exist in a space where um, the goal isn't to like conquer it and to know and understand what it is, but the goal might be so many different 
possible outcomes besides unlocking its secrets. And I think to some degree, um, my background and experience in dance and improvisation and music, all of those things play into it too, because those are nonverbal arts. And so there's a level of abstraction and kind of distance from concrete semantics when you are working with those arts. And so I think that bridge between them makes it more comfortable for me to make a book where, you know, my general audience is going to be English speaking, but they will pick up a, a book like this and not be able to read it all. And I think if you're released from the idea that you're going to read and understand it all, there's possibly something else that can come of it. Okay, so when translator Kate Briggs won the Wyndham Campbell Prize as as part of a celebration of her work, she invited you and Johannes Jorensen mm-hmm. and John Keane, three very different translators and three very different writers to join her in a really fantastic panel discussion. And after Kate prefaces that discussion, you say that you love the way she contextualized the conversation that you were about to have, a conversation where each panelist was going to read another panelist's text. So each person was choosing of their own choice uh, excerpts of the other panelists' works. That you loved the way Kate Briggs called this a republishing and a writing together, the way she has taken both publishing and writing outside the normal framing of it within a book, within a codex. Um, And I wondered if you had a story that you tell or you tell yourself about why you are attracted to this lifting of publishing or writing outside of what we would normally consider publishing or writing, or this lifting translation outside of what we would normally call translation. And similarly, making your poetry and your poems something that reach far away from poems, as we often think of poems. That reminds me of a, a a part of a question you asked earlier that I didn't get around to, which is, I don't remember the question now, but I was going to say something about how languages are things we can't own because they are just there and out there and we learn them to whatever degree we do. So there's a great fluidity in language itself. And I think that aspect of language and the fact that poetry is made of language makes it leads me to believe that poetry might also exist in this unowned unownable state um and then bringing that around to what kate was saying and suggesting and exploring with our publishing or republishing or speaking each other's texts i think is is part of that um communal engagement slash like ownership that we can share these parts of ourselves with each other and and the the pleasure we get in reading the words of others and to read them out loud and put them in physical space is something that we experience often uh we experience it often in the classroom but we also do it in our private spaces too if you read something you really enjoy and want to read it out loud to someone there's such visceral um kind of connection to words that are on the page you read them through your eyes you put them out again through your mouth and share it and goes into some other 
body through their ears, there's a transference that's pleasurable. It sounds so strange when you say it that way, but that's what <laughs> happens all the time. <laughs> it does, but if you trace the path, and I think yeah. I trace the path often because I think it's very mysterious to me that the hands are the are the places where the language gets materialized. And I'm always really interested in process in art making. So, you know, sometimes I'm I'm laying in bed and like a poem is happening and then something is something else is happening in the room and I'm like, wait, stop, I'm writing a poem. And it's like, you don't look like you're writing a poem, you're just laying there in bed. <laughs> and so it it's floating matter that exists, but it only gets captured in written printed form when we use our hands to put it down. And so now that I've said that and thinking about the way our bodies process or or um, receive poetry through mostly either ears or hands, not hands, eyes, I guess if it was Braille, it would come in through your hands. Um, I think there's something really great about exploring the somatics of poetry in experience as if it were dance, as if it were music, as if we might make poetry together as if we were dancing in a club or um, just improvising music. Well, maybe as a preface to another question um, that's related to that event with Kate Briggs, could we hear the first four pages of your manifesto? Uh, I don't know if you call it a manifesto, but I feel like it is one, <laughs> say, translation is on. Sure. Um, I I don't care what it's called. It's just a little pamphlet called Say Translation is Art. Say this. Say not this. Say it again. Like this. Say it again. Say whatever it takes, whatever it brings. Say this. Say translation as open art practice, as open as matter and antimatter. Say anti-translation as refusing or not to translate altogether, say not this. Say anti-translation as not refusing to translate, just refusing to translate. Refusing to translate like this. Say it again. Say, I've never heard someone divulge so much of their personal intimate life only to claim that their politics are private. Say coded language. Say language is code. Say translation of private space. Say public translation. Say, I share this shape with you. Say, your shape is your shape, like this. Say, non-binary stance toward texts and translations. Say, who, you. Say, who, I. Say, translating in the dark. Say smuggled translation, illegitimate translation, illegal translation, undefinitive translation, unauthorized translation. Screw and unscrew the hegemony cap translation. Say feral translation. Say eros in translation. Say I want to be translated by you. Say but not you. Say I want, I want, I want, I say. Say translation oceanic as desire. Say wild caged animal longing to be free translation. 
Say, I choose. Say, I choose this. Translation, a series of choices like any other moment of agency. Say, choose to luxuriate in the microerotics of choosing this word over that word, of choosing this word and that word, of breathing heavily into a space that may or may not have been there all along. Say, I tend, I incline, I lie down at your feet. Say, I bend, I love, I stretch, I break. Say, I bend language translation, I love language translation, I stretch language translation, I break language translation. Say, I am busy making. Say, I am busy loving translation. Say, I am busy code switching translation. I am busy cross-dressing translation. I wear it with pleasure. Say, pleasure. Been listening to Sawako Nakayasu read from, say, Translation is Art from Ugly Duckling Press. Okay, so we have a question for you uh, that is about this. <laughs> Hello, Sawako. Hello, David. This is Kate speaking. It's such a privilege to be invited to ask you a question, so I will just get straight to it. I would love to hear you talk aloud about the function of this say in the title of your brilliant pamphlet, Say Translation is Art, which begins, say this, say not this, say it again, like this. I'd like to hear you expound on this because it seems to me that the say holds together at least two of the aspects of your practice, which, as your reader, have been so precious and vital to me. One is this spirit of inquiry that I find everywhere in your work, speculation, imagination, this sense of what if things were not as they are. And second, this commitment to action. Say it and there's a chance that by saying it, you're also doing it or indeed I'm also doing it, making something new happen, which I guess opens up to your sense of what poetry can do in the world and what translation can do in the world. Now, I realise that is a lot to ask, and I've smuggled many questions into one. <laughs> but really, the starting point is to ask you how you feel about and what matters to you in this say. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. That is a beautiful question. I feel I feel a certain pleasure in your having brought Kate into our conversation like she's here with us now, which is wonderful. And the question I think is, well, I'll tell you the very, very first answer that popped into my head is how ridiculously shy and quiet and introverted I've been for much of my life. And so, um, you know, and I've learned a lot about that and I know that I'm not as quiet as I have been in the past, but I know I'm introverted and I know that I'm living in a culture that is kind of run by extroverts, let's say. And so so there's there's pressure on the notion to say, like, you know, when you're a student, which you are for most of your younger years, there's so much pressure to speak in class and say the answer, say the right thing, even if it's not class, if it's social, there's a lot of pressure to speak. And um, and so I've had a lot of resistance to that. And I know that part of what brought me to writing was, in fact, that it was a space where I could speak more comfortably than I could in 
real life, let's say. And I know this is not that uncommon for writers. And and in your question, Kate, I think you do kind of touch on the the two most common um, ways to interpret that say, one being the, the hypothetical. Say we go for a walk today into the abyss, that speculative, what if we do that? And then the imperative, say this, it's very um, tyrannical. And I think there's something um, about both of that that lives in me, this this desire to explore and open up different doors and see what happens. Say we do this, say we translate like this today and put on this outfit to translate like whatever kind of creature I'm trying to be. And, and also a little bit of a mantra like, like wanting to insist and intervene in my desire to make open different kinds of space for uh, for a different way to engage translation. And, and I think that the, the interest there for me and the interest in saying that line, say translation is art, is in um, opposition to, to the conventional notion of translation as you're not the real artist because the real artist is the one who wrote the original work and your thing, whatever you're doing, translator, is a secondary craft that's based on the original brilliance of that source text. So I, I do feel um, like there's a lot we can unpack in that inherited paradigm. Let me stay with Kate Briggs's second mm -hmm. notion, the tyrannical say or the, <laughs> or the um, imperative say. Say we think of translation as, as an act in the world, an action in the world that has consequences. Um, it seems like with the power dynamics between countries and languages and that translation's probably always a political act, but probably mm -hmm. even more so when we consider how little is, is translated into the American discourse. But I guess I wanted to ask you about translation as an act or a political act for you. Like I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, when I talked to Hélène Sixou's translator, Beverly B. Brahek, for the, for the bonus supplemental material for the show. She was comparing and contrasting herself to her friend, the poet translator Marilyn Hacker, who's often thinking about who she can bring into the discourse through translating. So it's like there, she's thinking of the, the collective and, and um, the service of, what, of who she's going to choose. Whereas more often than not, Beverly says she's translating based on what she could learn herself as a poet and as a translator, curiosities that she had. Not that the other element wasn't part of it. And I actually think Alain Sixu was an, was an exception in her translating life and more like Marilyn Hacker. But, mm. but if you think about this say as an act, a demand, and I just, I guess I wondered if you could speak for a moment about what considerations you do or don't have when we're talking about who to translate or mm -hmm. why to translate? Mm -hmm. Great question. There's a very, very primary decision that every translator makes, which is who to translate. And when I started, I didn't really 
I didn't really know exactly where to start. So I started with the only Japanese, the only contemporary Japanese poet I had heard of who happened to be Hiromi Ito, who's now been pretty well translated into English and I'm excited about that. But when I went to Japan in 2002 and I was invited to, to edit a translation feature for a journal called Ofgabe, edited by Tracy Grinnell, that suddenly gave me an assignment and said, okay, I'm gonna go to Japan and tra translate and find Japanese poetry to translate. And I think it was an interesting time in my life because I just finished my MFA and having, if I can recall being a recently graduated MFA student, I was full of a lot of strong feelings, let's say about what mattered and what didn't matter and what was good and what was bad. And, you know, I was very interested in drawing lines and finding my place in the world of poetry or literature, let's say. And so even as I was looking for who to translate, I was interested in sort of, you know, and I was waving my avant-garde flag really hard at the time. And so I wanted to find the experimental poets in Japan. So that was one aspect of what I was looking for. And then I really stumbled into Sagawachika kind of by accident. And what I realized was here was a poet who I only knew through the work because she was not very well known. She wasn't even well known in Japan. And it, it sort of came in a secondary way, my realization that I was making a choice to translate someone who was not well known. And thus I was not actively reinforcing a Japanese canon as presented by the Japanese canon makers. But I think that's also, I, I just wanna give a shout out to Keith Waldrop, who is the only person I ever formally studied translation with. And he was just somebody who wasn't concerned with those kinds of um, reaching for fame and ambition and, um, you know, making something of yourself in, in this context. And, and I'll say this too, I, um, in my translation workshop that I took with Keith Waldrop, you were supposed to get an assignment to translate somebody who had already been translated and you were going to redo it as an exercise. And at that moment, my French was better than my Japanese. And I translated this little couple of pieces from a work called Tropisms by Nathalie Sarot, which is a work that I loved. And I thought it was so great and how amazing it would feel to translate that and write it in my own words. So I did it. And then um, some snarky guy in the class, I had to present it. And some, somebody was like, it's very interesting that you chose her. and. I didn't even understand what he meant when he said interesting, but he was implying like, why would you attempt to translate this incredibly well-known French writer who has an incredibly well-established and brilliant translator already? Like you can't, you can't find your way into the world like that. And, and I was just so, um, so put off by that kind of ambition. And I thought, wow, I did this because I love the work and I wanted to experience it. And I was in it for the experience and I was a student. So I'm trying to learn something from the experience. And so I felt that I think all along the way in my 
life as a writer and translator, I've come, I've, I've so many stories like that where somebody is having some, you know, like, crit, not direct criticism, but some kind of dissonance with my decisions not being career oriented. Like, why are you doing that? It's not going to get you anywhere. And so, so then when I realized that Saga was brilliant, but unknown, I said, great, now everyone can know her. <laughs> <laughs> right. So while this has been a long preface to your upcoming poetry collection, Pink Waves, I think it's been an important preface that's going to pay a lot of dividends for us as we, <laughs> as we talk about Pink Waves. And I think there are probably a hundred different doorways we could pass through as a way to approach pink waves. So maybe the best way to start is to simply hear the opening of the book and then to unpack later the circumstances, constraints, aesthetics, and poetics of the work, but within the aura of having actually heard the words in, in pink waves. One, it was a wave all along. Two, it was a wave all along. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology. Three, it was a wave all along, sliding between the heat of now and surrender. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology. I sat with a friend and the loss of her child. Four, it was a wave all along. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology. I sat with a friend and the loss of her child, sliding between the heat of now and surrender. And then somebody holds your wild you closer to the range. The specks of a body don't reveal what it means. So which body do you want to wear today? the extent that we need another dollar. Five, it was a wave all along. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology. The extent that we need another dollar. It's haptic, it's your membrane. Sliding between the heat of now and surrender. And then somebody holds your wild you. Which parts available for naming? Atop a sharp manicured nail. A quiet neck is often mismeasured as discomfort, which is indifferent to the noise of the world. The desk is positioned at the wrong height. Emails insert pointed arrows to indicate previous utterance in a moment of refrain. The desk is a spatial deadline replacing a hip. She was an elegy function. She happened at once. She pitched. So did I love. These goals are a great carrier of stillness. Six, it was a wave all along. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology. Now I am at odds with myself sliding between the heat of now and surrender. She was an elegy function. She happened at once. 
she pitched. So did I love. Emails insert pointed arrows to indicate previous utterance in a moment of refrain. Closer to the range. The desk is a spatial deadline. And then somebody holds your wild you. It's haptic. It's your membrane. Cantilevered muscles. The extent that we need another dollar. Atop a sharp manicured nail. Which parts available for naming? I want the drifting organisms of the space between. I want the slightly eroded quicksand moat to protect us all from impending waves. I want a decidedly animal resolution. A slip of concentration in the predicate vicinity is cause for a public lapse, crashing one wave after another. The desk is positioned at the wrong height. She was an elegy function. She happened at once. She pitched the assumption of her back, the formal struggle of a vertical field of grass. Did your status change? Yes, we are warm. I want a very animal claim. When the goals bring the stillness, a new sound erupts as if out of nowhere. I think that some people just never stop writing. Sediments and molecules get inflamed more often than you think. Hip replacing hip. Internal findings move in super slow motion beneath the bedroom window. Seed of control. We've been listening to Sawako Nakayasu read from Pink Waves from Omnidon. Okay, so as an entryway into Pink Waves, we have another question for you. This one from Gabrielle Seville, returning the volley after you asked her a question in, in my conversation with her. So here is a question for you. Hi, David. Hi, Sawako. It's Gabrielle Seville, Sawako's biggest fan. I just had the pleasure of reading Pink Waves, and I'm so excited to learn more about this work. I'm especially thinking of your line, Sawako, quote, if time drops, here my function is to bewilder it, end quote. What does it mean in your work to drop and bewilder time? And does it, as I suspect, have anything to do with performance? I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Sending you lots of love, Gabrielle. Oh, Gabrielle. <laughs> Hello and thank you. Thanks, David, for inviting her to join us too. Um, performance time is bewildered. It's a kind of being. It's a special kind of being to be in performance. And it is wild and wilder especially thinking about your work, Gabrielle. Um, there is a certain aspect of performance that creates room for wilderness in, in which we do things in performance that would absolutely be frightening to others if we did it not in performance. And there's an aspect of being in performance 
that is not achievable by other means. So I don't know if this is a time drop, but I, I had this funny experience not that long ago of coming across these VHS tapes, videotapes of my very, very early performances. And they were done in San Diego. I was either still a student or had recently graduated and I was making performance art and I watched these videos of myself and it was that too was bewildering to see, you know, the the time warp between myself in my 20s and, you know, at least 20 years later and looking at myself on stage and I don't even understand what the performance is about. I'm it's text based. It's me on the stage. I'm saying and doing all these things. But the thing that came across most vividly was this incredible sense of owning and existing and being in my body and myself in a way that I'm pretty sure I didn't feel in most other aspects of lived life. And I think there was just a very special pleasure and joy and importance to coming into performance at that particular time in my life. Like when you're a young person, there's a lot of uncertainty about who you are and what you're doing with your life and where you're headed and all these normal questions about identity on top of that. And so when I looked at myself performing in my 20s, I could see that I felt completely myself, no matter what it was that I was actually doing or saying. And, you know, I, I did a lot of performance back then. So there are pieces that I can describe with more semantic, like more content. But I think in that moment, what I saw was um, just a state of being. And that state of being has always been very interesting to me. So that is something that continues to this day, where if I put myself in a performative mode, then for the duration of that performance, I am a little bit more myself than I am in the performance of living regular life. And, you know, we all know that we perform in many different ways through the course of our day. Well, let me read back to you some things that you've said. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to stay with your attraction to time and duration. Yeah. Um, you talk about mouth eats color, your anti-translations of Sagawa Chika, not only as a one-month-long book project, but as a one-month-long performance, giving yourself one month to create this book in contrast to the collected poems, which you said took a, a good part of a decade. And you've talked about this in relation to having played hockey, that there was no other context in your life that would make you move faster than being in the middle of a hockey game, <laughs> but that the structure of that game needs to exist for you to move this way. And you've talked about that in relation to your history of improvisational dance, where time is also demarcated and that you viewed Mouth Eats Color in this way too, as a performance in time. Even though this will repeat a little of what you've already said, I just love a particular section of your interview at LitHub where you say, quote, so I decided I'm going rogue. I wanted to see how many ways I could not play the game by the rules. 
there are so many established ways that poetry gets put out to the world. I was like, I'm not going to have an editor. I'm not <laughs> going to have a publisher. I'm not even going to polish the stone. I'm going to do it in a month. At the time, I had one child and a full-time job, which meant I hadn't had any time to write poetry, but I was on an academic calendar, so I suddenly had a month where I had free time and my child was in daycare. I said, I'm going to perform being a poet for a month, which I love. Uh, <laughs> but I want you to speak more to the ways that the constraint of duration is shaping pink waves in particular, a book that you've described as a structured improvisation. And what ways does the pink wave specific constraint make you move that no other context, even hockey, would make you move? You are so good at crafting questions, David. <laughs> I just have to appreciate that. Um, and it's, I, I wish I could just transcribe like all the thoughts that cross the mind as you're listening to a very thoughtful question about your work that traverses so much time of, you know, of having been an artist. And even the fact that you brought up my hockey reference brings me way back. Um, the, the constraint of time, well, it's, it's not that uncommon that constraint in itself leads to interesting creative decisions because of the constraint. And I spent a lot of time with dance improvisers. And as with many kinds of improvisation, there's a lot of practice and training and um, things that one does outside of the moment of performance. But the moment of performance puts a different pressure on it so that you bring it all and do it and show up and enter that performance mode. The thing that happened with Pink Waves was that, and again, I was on an academic calendar. And by this time I had two children and I was teaching and nearing the end of the semester. And I had started working on this book, but I wanted to finish it. But I also knew that summer was coming up. And once I finished the academic year and summer kicked in, I was gonna more or less transform back into full-time mom, like Cinderella. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm noticing the, the calendar and its forces. And I wanted to, I wanted to make time to finish this book. It reminds me of a question that a, a poet friend of mine asked once, the friend is Lin Chu, who's also a wonderful poet. Um, and she, she, she said to me after I had my first child, she said, are you going to start writing mommy poems? And I thought, well, I don't know. Um, I don't know what I don't know what that means in in the context of my work. Am I going to write about my kids? I didn't I don't really write about my children per se, but I know that having having a, a, a domestic life of this nature puts a lot of pressure on time. And I know that I'm very interested in time pressure. So this is exactly what I loved about hockey is I love the time pressure. Um, before that, the only other sport I played a little bit was tennis, but I never really liked it because I could never really get motivated to chase after the ball. 
when it was already on my court. And what I really loved, you know, and sports like um, hockey and soccer and basketball, where you're jostling for the thing with everybody at the same time, puts a lot of pressure. There's a lot of time pressure in every moment. And there's something about, there's something interesting about time pressure on performance and on art. And it's, it's not that different, I think, from the pressure of a deadline when you have to do something by a certain time. So say translation as art is a really great example of time pressure where they gave me, they gave me two years to write something. And I spent two years like drafting this and that and trying to come up with whatever I was going to write for this pamphlet. And the draft right before it was a whole thing I had said about beauty. And I was trying to reject certain conventions around beauty. And that didn't work out. And they said, oh, Sawako, we're out of time. This series is going to be published in 2020. You didn't do it. Sorry. And I said, no, wait. <laughs> I still want to do this. And I just wrote it in that moment of the window closing. And they were about to give up on me and cross my name off the list. <laughs> and and that led to this, this text that I'm quite pleased to have written now. So there's that notion of time pressure creating uh, a, a temporal energy that's activated in that moment. Anyway, Pink Waves was written in that week after the semester ended. And I said, okay, I'm gonna ex extend my semester a little bit longer and spend a whole week in the theater. So I reserved the theater and I said, I'm doing a performance because if you're doing a performance on a stage, nobody's going to call you up in the middle of it and say you have to do X, Y, and Z because you're on stage. And so it was my way, it was my way of like self-fashioning a, a really intense writer's residency <laughs> where I just had to do it. So I had begun it. I had begun writing it, but I wasn't done. I needed to finish it. So I created a structure. I created a performance occasion in order to finish this book and then something kicks in just like I did that month-long performance for Mouth Eats Color this is now a week-long performance and this one in particular wanted to be a performance not just for that um, logistical aspect of it but also because of some elements in the work I was writing and in the particular loss that I had experienced you know like we've We've spent so much time thinking or talking about form and process and whatnot, and the the tendency is to not think so much about the content of the poetry. But this work in particular um, happened at a moment when I was processing a particular kind of loss that was not going to be visible to anybody else. And so there was not an existing structure for me to deal with it. And thus the work had had those two valences. The writing was a way of processing and the performance of the writing was also a way of processing. And there were components of the performance where there were some things like objects that were unresolved and I, I was able to work them into the performance so that I could lay that to rest and have um, have done what I needed to do in that moment in my life. Well, I do want to um, ask some questions later that I think are going to speak more to content 
yeah, content and to motivation. <laughs> but I want to ask you yet another translation question first mm-hmm. in relation to this poetry. Because yeah. in, the, in the end notes, you talk about how part of this book is what you call microtranslation of the syntax of Black Dada by Adam Pendleton. Mm-hmm. And if I look at your book, say translation is art, you have a line on micro translation that goes, say micro translation, say, for example, translate only one component of a poem, translate only the syntax, translate the syntax in its entirety, say, translate the entire sonic landscape of the poem, say, translate the spirit, the kinetics, the ghost that haunts it. And also in the in the pink wave endnotes, you say that the form, the sentence, the microtranslation, and the language from various sources, they provided a structure from which to improvise the actual writing. So perhaps these other things, the form, the sentence, the microtranslation, maybe even the constraint of performance is the scaffolding from which you're able to hold and and explore the loss that you've nodded towards uh, in the content of the writing, writing that is partially done on stage with others. So I have a three-part question for you about all of this. <laughs> Talk to us more about microtranslation, for one. Two, Talk to us about why you wanted to microtranslate the syntax of black data in particular, what black data means for you. And then tell us about any revision process that happens when you're not on stage. If the writing is literally a performance, if you've rented out the theater and you're completing the book on stage, how does the revision process look when you're back at your desk, if there is one? And are there any parameters or constraints that you set for yourself involved in in the revision? Anything you don't allow yourself to do with what you've produced in an improvisational moment with certain parameters? Uh, are, how much freedom do you give yourself when you're then back looking at the words static on a white page? It seems unfair, David, to ask three questions all at once. <laughs> But it also seems generous because I can pick and choose. So maybe that's your intent. Um, I'll I'll start with the easy one, which is about revision. It's easy because I did not revise after the end of that performance. But a big part of the performance was revision. You know, I have this experience. I think lots of people have this experience of when you give a poetry reading and you read work that's new, suddenly when you're on stage reading it, you go, oh, I need to change that line or this word, or there's a a natural mode of revision that kicks in when you're presenting your work. And and so I, I kind of used that in this performance, even when there was nobody in the audience, because it took place over a long period of time. So it wasn't like, people are filling the seats all the time. It was very sparse. And sometimes I'd be alone in there, but I had a mic and the mic was on and I would read 
what I had written into the mic amplified into this huge theater. And it was such a great way to revise. Like it put me in that revision mode and I would just read it and revise, read it and revise. And that was a big part of what, I, what was happening in that stage. So it's another, another aspect of bringing performative context or uh, I don't know, usefulness into the work. So the other questions are about microtranslation and why uh, Black Data by Adam Pendleton. Also just about syntax and how, how very interested I am in, in syntax itself and the, the ways in which syntax holds so much while being abstracted from the actual words of, you know, that they hold. So when I started writing, my, my very first source text was Waveform by Amber DiPietra and Denise Lito. That book was the first book that I was thinking with and being with and interacting with in my writing. And, and at that point, I had kind of an amorphous pile of language that was accruing without having a form. So it was like, you know, language matter, poetic matter without a form. That happens to us sometimes. You go, what do I do with this? At the same time, I was really interested in books that were being made by Siglio Press, which is interesting to me. I like how something about the, the mission statement of that press says it's got a feminist ethos. So the feminist ethos is defined through the wide range of the books they make, but it doesn't mean you have to be female to have that ethos. And one of the books that they, um, so I was going through, I was, I borrowed from the library a whole bunch of books from the press because I was just interested in what they were doing. And one of the books I ended up reading was the one called Becoming Imperceptible by Adam Pendleton. And it's got a whole series of black and white images. Um, some of them are very well-known, iconic images of black civil rights leaders and images that are familiar or not. Sometimes they're abstracted, sometimes they're cropped in different ways, but they repeat over the course of the book. And most of the book is nonverbal. It's just these images and sometimes they're magnified. So I was interested in the syntax of that book and the ways in which it created a certain music through this visual language. And then after coming across all these images, you get to the end of the book and you see the text that he wrote called Black Data. And immediately when I started reading it, I was very drawn to the syntax and the pattern, the form, which is what I ended up using as my springboard for the form of Pink Waves. It, it you know, kind of, re it veers off at some point, but it was it was really the initial moment that gave me a form for this work. And I I know that there's a politics in his work that is something I feel I don't know if the right word is adjacent or sympathetic or in coalition with. And the fact that the the poem Black Data being from Amiri Baraka, who was somebody who had been very influential for me as a young poet. And just remembering too, I think what Adam Pendleton's poem did is that it brought me back to some very early formative experiences that I had had in 
my very beginning moments of becoming a writer, which happened when I was an undergrad. And I, I didn't quite, you know, when you're young, you're just exploring and learning and poking into all these different threads. And as, as an Asian American, I would take some Asian American literature classes. And there's something about that, that I couldn't connect to. There was something about the the stories and narratives being interesting, but there was something formally alienating to me. And it was alienating in the sense that it felt like it was inhabiting forms that were dominant mainstream forms of narrative and of narrative poetry. And where I ended up in those explorations was in largely in literature written by either the avant-garde or by Black writers like Amiri Baraka or James Baldwin or John Edgar Wideman and I and Toni Morrison. And I, I found an aesthetic opening. And for whatever reason, it was the Black writers who made me think that there was space in the field for me to write also. I stumbled into interesting, really interesting thinkers like Will Alexander, who happened to teach a class and taking a class with Will Alexander is not that different from inhabiting one of his books, but it's a little bit more embodied. And also, you know, it, it there is kind of a mystical, strange sensation of of being able to engage literature as a very separate space from the the realities of you know all the muck that we have to find our way through. Let me link this to something that you say in the endnotes. You say in the endnotes, "Pink waves is my attempt to be true to the thickness as I move through time and space in cross sections of wave upon wave. Some forms of otherness are more specific to my own history." Some accrue through the discourse of others, all these spreading differences. I want to ask you about spreading differences in, in multiple different ways, but I think the first one that you're already talking about could be considered these other sources that you've chosen to allow to crash like waves into your waves in this book, Waveforms and Black Dada being only two of many that wave upon wave change your waveforms and also reappear throughout pink waves. But there's another way I think about spreading differences, all these spreading differences that I want to ask about. Again, it's a way that I connect it, and I don't know if you connect it this way. In a roundtable discussion about Don Miche's book, Translation is a Mode Equals Translation is an Anti-Neocolonial Mode, you talk about Paul Preciado's idea of naturalized desire, that sexualities can be learned like languages, that we are molded a certain way through the world we are born into, but then go on to recognize these as our natural desires, when really they could have been different desires if the situation had molded us differently. And, and you connected this to your own work to decolonize yourself and to decolonize your poetry. In a different event called 
race and poetry in America at Brown University. You talk about how you grew up in a very white America within the white experimental poetry scene, and that when you look back at older work, you feel like it is feminist work, but that it feels like a white feminism of a former self. And lastly, you had this great conversation with C.A. Conrad, where you talk about coming out to C.A. and Ann Waldman, but also how you feel like your poetry was queer first, and then you followed. That your book with Wave Books, Some Girls Walk Into the Country They Are From, that was the book where you thought you were coming out to the world, but it doesn't seem to have been received that way. Um, you also say in that conversation that you were writing a book now about changing identity from straight to queer, which I, I wondered if you were referring to Pink Waves or a different book. But even if it isn't Pink Waves, I'm interested to know if you see this book as a queer book and if the notion of moving through time and space in cross-sections of wave upon wave wave upon wave of otherness, all spreading difference, if that's one way we could describe a Nakayasu queer poetics. <laughs> Thank you for that, David. I love talking about my queerness because it's it's kind of funny to me that it came as late as it did in terms of my recognizing that spreading differences is a tweak of a line from Gertrude Stein, the difference is spreading. And I've always held that line in my head and heart as whatever it might mean for the difference to spread. I'm thinking also about, I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that Paul Preciado quote, which I think is probably somewhere in say translation as art too where I, I appreciated so much how he talks about how language is naturalized and we were born into one language and thus it feels natural. And then we learn another language and it turns out that you can have more than one languages and he transfers that idea to sexuality and that you're born into. We're often most of the time born into you know, what they call compulsory heteronormativity. Is that what they say? Um, anyway, it's compulsory because it's so dominant in the culture and I certainly grew up in it. And I was so much older when I realized that that didn't have to be the case. And I wanna say something about, I'm not sure if this is directly in conversation with the things about performance we were talking about, but there's something, about even when it's not a performative, like allegedly performative act of it, something there's something about art making itself, even if it's completely interior is still performative, or if not performative, it's operating in some different corner of our bodies, and it has access to to different parts of ourselves. And so what I wanted to say was that I was I was pregnant with my second child when I suddenly realized or decided or had some kind of epiphany and decided I had to make film. I was gonna become a filmmaker, which is like the most pragmatically insane thing to decide at that particular moment. And 
you know, it's, it's not so easy to make film while having these two small, one and a half small children. So I went to screenwriting class that happened at night and I, 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 I took this little path into filmmaking and it was an incredible experience and journey and I absolutely loved it. But one of the weird side, side effects, <laughs> side effects of trying to make film is that I kept trying to make films about women who were married in a cis heteronormative marriage, but decided or realized they were queer. And I did that for many, many times before I realized that that was me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a, there's a strangeness in these um, parallel spaces that are art, artistic minds kind of are ahead of us. And I think many of us have some version of that experience, but I think that, um, when I'm thinking about pink waves and Paul Preciado and all the things that are naturalized. And, and again, I point to that, that shift of my consciousness and my own queerness. And by the way, I'll say too, that even though I say I'm queer, I'm also married, I'm cis, it's heteronormative, I carry all that heteronormative privilege. And I've had infinite conversations about what it means to be queer within that. And we landed on this, I, I think I came up with this, I said, I'm, I'm queer, like an inactive volcano. <laughs> like, like the volcano is a volcano, even if it's not active, and I'm not actively queer in my lived relationships. And I want to own the privilege that I have in my relationships. But going back to um, pink waves and all the things that are naturalized to use Paul Preciado's language, which I find really useful because once we start identifying everything in our perspectives that are naturalized, going back to anything as basic, something as basic as language, and denaturalizing and kind of asking what it might mean to to disavow that notion of anything being natural and you know you can convert that to thinking about what is common sense and common sense is just a set of agreements that any group of people make but it tends to be that which is held by a particular dominant group so in thinking about naturalized language and normalized um, translations. And maybe I can bring this back to the micro translation. A micro translation in my world is talking back to the idea and the anguish around a translator trying to, trying to and failing to bring everything over, that you have a responsibility to the original work to bring every single possible aspect of that work over into the new language, which is inherently impossible because you're changing every single word <laughs> as you're writing this translation. So I, I, I think a micro translation is a is a micro intervention in that conversation. Yeah. And I, I guess also the thing about pink waves is that it's not the micro translation aspect of it is a significant part of the form and process of how I did it. But I think after that, it, it just becomes its own thing and has its own life. And 
it doesn't really hold as a translation in even in our most wildest definitions of translations, it's hard to call it a translation. But, you know, I also did want to give credit to the people whose works led to it. They are sources and I, I did ask for permission and um, I wanted to honor Adam Pendleton and also Ron Silliman, whose very influential work, Ketchak, is the form that Adam Pendleton was working off of. And I wanted to acknowledge Amber DiPietra and Denise Lito. Like these, these books gave this work life. And you're spreading differences, even in just naming all <laughs> of those people, that chain of, of that lineage. I mean, this, this really makes me think of something that you said that I found compelling on Rick Henry's website about queer theory and translation. And I'm going to paraphrase you, but you, you said that that queer theory is interested in the ways that it pushes against binary frameworks and that translation is a super binary entity, source and target, where everything in the in-between more often than not becomes invisible. So there are aspects of translation that can stand to be renegotiated through the doors that queer theory opens up. So it sounds like microtranslation is one way to trouble this this idea of erasure that happens when you put translation into this binary mode. You then go on to talk about Jack Halberstam's book, Queer Art of Failure, as a really good book to apply to translation, that while this book is talking about marriage and social institutions, the way it's talking about them could be applied to translation. But thinking of marriage and binary frameworks, I also think of your thoughts on faithfulness <laughs> in translation, where you've said elsewhere, and I love this quote, one of the difficulties in translating poetry is balancing multiple demands at once. For example, to make it simultaneously faithful and beautiful. Yet it got me to thinking about faithfulness and its opposite, perhaps also in terms of defining what it means to be quote unquote true. What good is a faithful partner if he or she is not interesting in the first place, it's just such a that's such a <laughs> funny and great line. But let's let's um let's hear a little bit more of Pink Waves, and then I'm going to okay. ask you another. I want to move to like another way that I say spreading differences. But if we could hear section eight, okay. Eight. It was a wave all along. She was an elegy function. She happened at once. She pitched. A passing moment reveals itself to have cued the long apology, the formal struggle of a vertical field of grass. Now I am at odds with myself. Black Dada. Black Dada was written by Adam Pendleton. The Black Dada Reader is a collage by Adam Pendleton in the form of a book. Black Dada is not mine. But Black Dada made this book. It crashes into my performance Tuesday, May 14, 2019, 11.50 a.m. Can you hold it? Do you hear it? Is it hard enough? Do you like it? Do you want more? Is this the right angle? Is it here? Are you breathing? Is it you? Are you here? Does it hold? Is it too heavy? What about dinner? fish or cigarettes or coffee bed of fog 
I do not claim black data, but I know that certain uses of the word love is a trap. Internal findings move in super slow motion beneath the bedroom window. Hideous art, that which is dead. Reflux is the new register upon which we vote. Music was used by the children like this. They shout song lyrics into the air and make friends with those who turn their heads. One can aspire to be almost as good as the children on bicycles. Back in the dirt, naively rooting around. Back in the dirt, successive generations. Back in the dirt, all the loves I have loved. Back in the dirt, bring a flower when you visit in case the rest is unintelligible. You, 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 night, you, you. That is how she said it. I need you to see it, want it. I need an animal resolution. I need the slightly eroded quicksand moat to protect us all from impending waves. I need to enter the space between. I need the drifting organisms of the space between. In the late 1960s, Valerie Solanas and Solowit sat down in New York to write manifestos while others feared for their lives because of their manifestations. In 1967, Solanas self-published Scum Manifesto and sold the mimeographed copies on the street. Solowit's paragraphs on conceptual art were published in Art Forum. In 1969, Sirhan Sirhan shot Bobby Kennedy. No, that was 1968. Alone over my dead fire. In part, I pass by pursuing your betters. White Pablo, Black Pablo. In 1970, the student Irina Dunn scrawled, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle on a bathroom door. In 1960, the poem became a functional object except not for most of us. Women marched in 2017 in pink hats and not pink hats. As I write this, I consider the upcoming first lockdown, which war against which rational this time, this time. What is the 1960s hanging from the hot bosom of the 2010s? I still notice Gertrude Stein, but would have steered clear of her ego. Seemingly large beauty or glitter or the dark whip of power, Stacy Tran has left. In the wake of accumulated war never ending. Mass breathing, dislocation, burnt confabulation, Black Pablo. Conceptual artists do not hold hands. They do not have hands, not in that way. Conceptual artists do not march. They do not have feet and legs, not in that way. Conceptual artists do not make faces. They do not have feelings, not in that way. History is a cube in the foreground. I prick my ears to the back. You, 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 fire. A slip of concentration in the predicate vicinity is cause for a public lapse, crashing one wave after another. Line, hold to it, closer to the range. I want the detached musculature to resist. Kick in my mouth. 
I want a person to drown in or mirror laughter. Emails insert pointed arrows to indicate previous utterance in a moment of refrain. So do I love. The desk is a spatial deadline. The desk is positioned at the wrong height. I will stretch and fix it for you. The central rhythms of partial identities. The sound must never impose itself over the images or override or shout down. Any alerts on the table must answer to the desk. Emancipatory or reactionary figures are not allowed to coexist. Substandard caprice, horrid little boys, and schooners of any kind are actively discouraged. A woman lies in the middle of the central aching pasture from which she cannot get up. Alienation of hybrid bodies and terms are forbidden but deeply commonplace. An intervention is requested but unfulfilled. When I was willing to wait 30 minutes, two hours, 10 years for you, green blade of a grassy field, self into self, cantilevered muscles of joy, fact bandwidth, snap, refuge. I've been listening to Sawako Nakayasu read from Pink Waves. So to return again, uh, maybe in the spirit of waves, to this question of spreading differences as a poetics, um, another thing I'm thinking about with regards to that is identity in relationship to collectivity, which might loop us back to questions of originality. But I love how you say in the reading, Black Dada is not mine, but Black Dada made this book. It crashes into my performance. But thinking about how this crashing wave of otherness makes this book, I, I want to talk for a minute about ants and about girls. You say the ants in your book, the ants, and the girls in your book, some girls, girls who are often referred to as girl A or girl L or girl P. You say in your interview at Colorado State University that they act as a foil and also as a form. They are, quote, perhaps better thought of as a conceptual poetic form, one that works on the writing mind to coax the poem forward. And you refer to these poems as the quote-unquote girl poems. But the intentional flatness of the girls, the almost cartoonish quality to some of their scenarios, with poem titles like A Line of Five Girls with Golf Balls in Their Mouths, Four Girls Pool Their Breasts Together, or girls duck into a dumpling to escape the stench of Saturday night humanity. The flatness and the fungibility of these characters, I think is in stark contrast to the fact that these poems are being translated into or from a variety of languages by seven quite dimensional women translators. Um, that these poems, which are partly about misogyny and the way women are seen, spoken of, interacted with, reduced, that these poems are brought to life again and again in various ways by a collective of women at the same time. And I also like what Carolyn Bergvall said in Poem Talk about these poems, that because each poem feels like a small fable, that the poetics feel communal, that the poems are stories that are meant to be told, that they're expecting a reader, and readers are expected, invited, and hoped for. Um, this all made me think about spreading difference 
as being as much about bringing difference into deadened categories like aunt and girl, but also about inviting otherness into our own work. Um, I guess I wondered if you had any thoughts about identity and the collective in light of this, the, this uh, tension between the way you're using static and, and perhaps fable-like uh, characters which are often flat by design um, or flat, our flat notion of insects, one to the next, um, how this might relate to spreading difference when you then invite this collective of dynamic women to translate and retranslate these strangely labeled um, undifferentiated <laughs> girls. <laughs> I guess there's there's something interesting about what you're bringing up in terms of a fable and flatness. And I think in my own choice of language, I might I might use the word abstraction as opposed to flatness, but they're they're kind of similar in the way that they're removed a little bit from specificity and the richness of actual people and events and whatnot. I guess maybe I can go back to when you said how I think of them, the ants and the girls as a foil and as a form. And I think in a way, you know, there are things about identity and particularly about race and gender for me um, that are difficult to speak to directly. And part of why it's difficult to speak to directly is because there's a lot of anger and hard feelings and complicated feelings and nuance that make it hard to to say what i'm really thinking in a direct way but i have found poetry to be a space that has a really rich relationship to abstraction where you can position a poem at any point on the spectrum and it can seem you know it can sort of have the veneer of specificity here is a poem there are ants in it or there are girls in it there's something happening and i think there's something interesting about the way it reads as flat or abstract because i'm saying something that's underneath the thing that's actually being said whatever i was thinking about when i was writing all those ant poems i'm not actually thinking about ants much at all i'm thinking about humans and collectivity and relationships and you know the ants just became this door or portal that if i if i put an ant on something i would write something that i was really thinking about um in terms of the girls it's it's a little bit more specific in the sense that i was Coming back to the US, this is 2017, I had spent the last, most of the last 15 years in some part of Asia, mostly Japan. During that time, I had, I had evolved in certain ways where my own thinking about my own identity had shifted. I, you know, when I, when I first decided to go to Japan in 2002, I remember telling my friends, like, I'm moving to a country where I'm not attracted to the men in that country. And what a terrible thing to say and to think. And I didn't even, you know, blink when I said that. I just thought it was so normal and 
naturalized to my um, assimilated whiteness in thinking that like this whole continent of Asian men were not going to be attractive. And, you know, and coming from that to having decided it didn't even have to be a man <laughs> to it didn't have to be a white man, you know, like all these things about what we desire were such a huge shift in my consciousness that they infiltrated my work in thinking about where the desire was and what I was trying to get to through the poems. And sometimes the poems are using or they're talking about girls. So it gives you the impression it's a feminist poem. It's talking about girls. And there is a lot of misogyny in the the straight up narratives that I'm telling in the book with the girls. But I'm also aware as the writer and only as the writer that a lot of those poems came out of an experience of race related anger and a discomfort with talking about race so directly and there's something about and it's not that I want to conflate those those modes of difference there's so much history and actual experiences that are incredibly different from each other so it's not I don't want to flatten those differences into one mode but it's more that I am thinking about my feminism as having you know come up through through whiteness and and thinking about the the path away from white feminism so staying with this question of identity in relationship to pink waves it feels like to me in many of the conversations i've watched or listened to you talk about yourself often in relation to whiteness and more specifically you bring up complicated questions for you as an Asian American and as a Japanese American. For instance, in the race and poetry in America conversation, you're zooming in from Tokyo and you say that you're speaking from the seat of the former Japanese empire and then go on to acknowledge the history of, of colonial occupation by Japan of many other Asian countries um, about sexual slavery uh, as a weapon of war and you say this is part of your identity and heritage, and then speak also about your joy and pride and solidarity with Asian Americans and other BIPOC writers in the United States. So obviously there was a lot of thought, I think, that, that happened for you prior to this event, that you wanted to just position yourself in this way. But I also think of how your last book isn't just a book where seven other women are translating with in your own poetry collection, but seven Asian women. And I'm thinking about an analysis of that book in the Columbia Journal by Odelia Liu and Brittany Wynn, where Brittany talks about how, as an Asian American, she often finds herself speaking Chinglish or Vietlish, and that because of this, she loves the level of play in the poems, in your poems when they're immersed in more than one language simultaneously. And their discussion of Girl P, the poem and the character, Girl P who is born into a Korean family in China, yet receives her education in Japanese because she lives in a district that's under Japanese colonization. 
I, I'm curious, curious to hear about pink waves in the light of this. Are there questions that you're exploring around race or more generally about identity, um, about Asian American politics or not, or whiteness within pink waves, which doesn't feel as immediately obvious to me as it does in some girls. Since you mentioned girl P, I'll, I'll say too that in some girls walk into the country they're from, there's, there's a way in which labeling the girls by the letter makes them anonymous. And sometimes they feel really interchangeable because they're lumped together into one group. And yet in my, in the origins of this book, and when I first started writing them, girls A through F, J, I don't know how far it goes. Each of those girls was actually modeled on a very specific Asian woman, one of them being me. Um, and, and as the work evolved, it sort of, um, some of the elements blended, some of the girls retained their characteristics. There's kind of a, there's a way in which there's, there's collectivity and there's individuality within those girls. And, and Girl P, that was a poem that was written by a wonderful Korean Japanese poet, Kyomi Park. She wrote that poem in response to my inviting her to write something, translating something out of the manuscript that I was working with. So when I engaged Kyungmi Park and others who you um, noted, they were given some part of my manuscript. I shared either a couple of poems or the whole thing or whatever existed at the moment. And they were allowed to, they were invited to choose and enter and play and collaborate and translate and translate to whatever degree of accuracy or normalized translation. And many of them were familiar with my own work in translation. So they knew they could take that permission and run in different directions with it. And it was interesting. One of the things that's happened as that book has been received by the world and talked about, and sometimes they will point out a poem, like in the case you described with, um, with Girl P, and they'll talk about that poem as if I had written it. Or I'm not sure if they, as the reviewer, knew that I didn't write it, but I translated it, or whatever those relationships are, I'm, I'm creating a, a sort of continuum of translation and authorship and collectivity and individuality. And that was part of the interest in that. Another one of the things you bring up, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up my commenting that I was zooming in from the seat of the Japanese Empire, which is kind of a weird thing to say. <laughs> but I, I realized that um, people often give land acknowledgments. And when you think about Japan, there's no there are only certain parts of Japan that had indigenous people in Okinawa and Hokkaido mostly. And the the thing that really stuck out to me about Japan in that moment of thinking about race and ethnicity and power and poetry and all these things was that I really and and I I'm also thinking about the conversation you had with Elaine Castillo and lots of people have this conversation too. like Jay Caspian Kang on the New York Times. He talks a lot about how this whole concept of Asian American really is it's it's false because the histories among the countries are so 
not only are they varied, but there's so much power and destruction and colonialism and imperialism within Asia. And sometimes I joke that I'll say the Japanese people are the white people of Asia. And it is in the sense that the imperialist moves were modeled after Western forms of imperialism. So I partly want to talk about that a lot because it's so not talked about. And especially in Japan, where the government actively prevents people from talking about it and ensures that it's never spoken of in the textbooks and history books. It's very actively covered up as a history. And, and it's a complicated history because Japan also received two atomic bombs. Japanese Americans were interned in the US. There's, there's, a, there's a way in which you can go either way in terms of what your posi position is as someone having Japanese heritage. Um, so, so I think about that and I, I do feel like I am a descendant of Japanese imperialism in the sense that my maternal grandfather worked for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and he was involved in building the Zero, those kamikaze planes. And, and on the other hand, my father's father, uh, and including my father too, they lived in occupied Korea during that time and they were they were parts of the colonial machine then too. So I'm I'm thinking about how complicated it is to lump us all together as Asian Americans, first of all, mm -hmm. and especially right now with the Harvard Affirmative Action case and Asians being used by that lawyer, Edward Blum, who originally had his case with white plaintiffs. And then that didn't work. So he said, all right, I need some Asians to represent this case, which, is a huge problem and I, I I think it's partly happening because of our lack of general literacy about Asia and the various histories, but I strayed a little bit I want to go back to um, your asking about pink waves, I think about pink waves and some girls walk into the country they're from as companion books, partly because they were written at around the same time pink waves might have come out before some girls, but it just happened to be this way. There's even another book that I wrote during the same period, and that book is called Settle Her. And it's about my, that book also, all these books, three books written about the complicated transition of returning to the US in 2017, partly a function of that cultural moment in the US, but also a function of my having left the country in 2002 and spent so much time in Asia and spent so much time during that period dealing with or reckoning with all these aspects of my own identity and how how strange it is the way we inhabit our identities as if they're a given as if they're totally natural as if they're just who we are and it's a funny thing to sort of unpeel those layers and reveal or evolve or change into a different version of yourself. When I say that, I'm thinking about my current partner, who's Korean American, who remembers me when we first met, which was the very first summer when I went to Japan. And he said, when I first met you, you were the whitest Asian I had ever met. I think that's just such a striking and real and complicated and interesting thing that I find myself constantly thinking about is the whiteness in Asian Americans and especially in East Asian Americans. 
um, there's just as much race in pink waves as is in some girls walk into the country they are from. They, they manifest very differently. Pink waves has a lot more pain and sadness and loss and, um, and all these different kinds of loss that were happening at that time. And, and some of those losses are racially complex, whether they are my losses or those of others. There were so many interlocking parts of what it meant to have an aesthetic project, to make a book of poetry in relation to the, the content or the, the sort of ineffable thing you might be trying to say. I can make a claim, for example, that, I don't know, every other line is about race in some way, but it's also inhabited in different ways. Sometimes I could be speaking from my previous whatever um, racially less aware version of myself. Sometimes I'm speaking from a more overtly political standpoint. There's a line I say about the language poets and how they, and this is this is my love hate with the language poets and the whiteness of the avant-garde. And it's like, they did an incredible thing of kind of, of taking power. I think the line was, I can't, I can't quote myself very well, but, you know, about taking power from the institution or putting their politics in the aesthetics and taking power from the institution. And they did get that power. And, and yet there's still a very, very deep whiteness that runs throughout that project and that time. And, and, you know, some of those people were my very best mentors, like Carla Harriman, who is, who said a really wonderful thing to me when I was young. And she said, you know, it's great that you're influenced by us and all, but it's really even more important for you to be critical of the people who are influencing you. And, and so she's implicating herself in that. And um, where was I? Um, I talked about how I landed on that form with Pink Waves and Adam Pendleton. And it was, it was an interesting thing that happened when I encountered that work through Adam Pendleton, he opened up that door that kind of led me straight back to my very, very early beginnings as a poet. I guess one of the ways in which Adam Pendleton is bringing Amiri Baraka back into the conversation is he talks about how people don't allow him the room to be abstract in his work, or you know that he gets typecast as this radical Black poet. He's so incendiary. And, and the poem itself, Black Data Neolismus, is, um, it is an incendiary poem. And I remember Ann Waldman saying that her students walked out of class when she taught it, because there are these lines that are very provocative. And they say, they say something about raping the white ladies or something horrible. And it reminded me also of the very first time I translated something, which was by the Japanese poet Hiromi Ito. That was, my, that was gonna be my first publication. But the poem was called Killing Kanoko, and Kanoko is the name of her actual daughter. And there's a there's a poem about this maternal anguish and struggle, and it talks graphically about killing one's own daughter, which is also horrible. And uh, I translated it; it was about to get published, and then the it was the publication was called How To, and it was a feminist experimental poetry journal, but it was hosted by a university, and they wanted to. They wanted to pull it because it was a little bit too extreme. And my editor, I think it was Anne Vickery, who's in Australia, she she did this wonderful thing of 
like writing a preface saying, no, we don't advocate killing your own babies. Like that's not what the poem is about. And we need to allow for that in poetry. And, and there, there's that certain aspect of like things being challenging or provocative and where it's allowable in poetry or in regular speech and that fuzzy border between the poetic speaker and the shifty poetic speaker. And I am really interested in that shiftiness of the poetic speaker where sometimes, sometimes those lines, so pink waves, there's a line that repeats where I say, I sat with a friend and the loss of her child. Like that is just a completely straightforward, direct autobiographical line. It's a sentence. But then there's another line that says, I don't know, like I have a nice dick or something like that. And it's like, well, no, I don't have a penis, but I'm interested. <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's something interesting about inhabiting that space. Yeah. So there are, there are lots of aspects of identity. There are lots of aspects of race and, and the very kaleidoscopic way that I felt about race in that moment. And I, I was thinking about how people often tell you who they are, right? And and I was having this conversation with a friend and, and I asked them, I'm like, what do I say about who I am? And they said, well, the thing you tend to say <laughs> is something along the lines of you're a recovering white feminist or you used to be white. And I, I think I probably do say that and you probably noticed that too. I am thinking a lot about the ways in which whiteness lives outside of just your skin color and the ways in which Asians have and maybe light skin colored East Asians, for example, or maybe just me, like we have a way in which you can blend in and inhabit whiteness and play those games by those rules and do that or not to. And it's it's a more or less active choice once we know what's going on. When we're young, it's harder to know. So I want to pick up that comment you said a, a little while ago about Asians being lumped together and how counterproductive that can be around like pretty large differences in terms of representation or in terms of power or in terms of past history within that word Asian American, um, but also it's interesting around this, the book, some girls where you say all of these girls have these sort of anonymizing names, which are protecting identities perhaps, but they're characterized, but there's a way in which both the um, playfulness of that book. And then the way that it's hard to keep track of which girl is which girl and who's translating which poem and who's who wrote the poem. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's dizzying intentionally it's easy to skim over, not the poem, but to skim over the characterization mm -hmm. and hold on to it. And I remember when poem talk was happening about that book, that they don't get to like the sexual violence until the very end. And they even feel mm -hmm. guilty. I feel, they, <laughs> I feel like they feel um, swept up in these other elements, which are partly reenacting this lumping together, even though everything else you say is there. Um, and I guess this is just an aside. I was I was listening to Monica Yoon on a panel of Asian American Poetics for the New Yorker, and she was talking about you know white replacement theory 
the fear white people have of being replaced by immigrants. And she talked about how Asians were, I guess you could say, she didn't say this, but I guess you could say Asians were lumped together or certain Asians were lumped together as Asians and were literally and explicitly brought here to replace people that Asian laborers were brought to keep white working class laborers from unionizing. And then after emancipation, Asians were brought to the South to undercut the wages of freed enslaved peoples that Asians have been put or some Asians have been put in the position where they are the temporary replacements of American labor, but later to be disposed of and then shipped back afterwards. And and somehow that feels connected. I'm not sure you're engaging with this or not, but it feels connected to the sense of the anonymity or interchangeability of the girls in some girls that maybe that flattening of the naming isn't just about misogyny, but has this racial valence also. But elsewhere, you have talked about Dorothy Wong's book, Thinking Its Presence, Form, Race, and Subjectivity in Contemporary Asian American Poetry, as a book that showed you that you weren't as white as you thought you were. That's how you characterize (laughs) this book. And I think people listening would be interested to know, well, what did that book do? Like what, what does that book mean to you and how did that achieve that? How, how does thinking it's presence by Dorothy Wong, um, how's that been an important part of your reconception of self for you in this way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book, it is such a potent book and it's, I guess it's been a while since it's been published, but I remember how it's one of those books that as I'm reading, and especially in the introduction, you just kind of put your hand over your mouth and go, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. Um, because she does, and and in a way she's kind of, uh, she's kind of like a Miri Baraka in that sense of just saying it straightforward and um, sometimes kind of bluntly. But I mean, not to say that she's blunt in her book, she's very thorough and very uh, passionate about poetry itself. So it's, it kind of reminds me of, um, I was listening to your conversation with Elaine Castillo, and there's a moment when she says, um, she talks about fighting with her family, and fighting with her family is, in a way, fighting for her family. And, and I think about that in the sense that poetry is a sort of family for many of us, and Dorothy Wong is very much doing that thing of fighting the family in order to fight for the family. So um, in some senses, it's there, there's an aspect, especially in the introduction where it's kind of combative and she's very critical of people like Marjorie Perloff for being, for being unwilling to accept uh, writing by by writers who she sees as inferior aesthetically and and feels like there's a there's kind of an infiltration of these immigrant writers and their narratives and it's all about identity and writing about identity is not as literary or 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 it doesn't have as much literary value as writing that's focused on aesthetics which is a false dichotomy that that Dorothy then you know takes apart over the course of her book and along with many other things but it's 
And it's also interesting now thinking back on that book and thinking about all the things that have happened since then and the ways in which I think when when she wrote that book, there was not much discussion about race and the avant-garde. And since then, there has been a lot of it. And I think some of it, much of it is in conversation with what Dorothy was uh, suggesting we talk about. <laughs> There's so much to say about that book because it it gave me that feeling of when somebody comes along and puts language to things that you've been thinking and feeling, but you hadn't had the the faculties of your own to articulate it. And then somebody comes around and just like, oh, I've been thinking those things and you've said it. And I felt that way about Amiri Baraka when I was young and he would write these, I don't know if they were editorials or essays or something that he would publish in the Poetry Project newsletter. And they were I don't remember if they were explicitly about race, but he would say something and my I remember my reaction to it, which was like like the the emperor's new clothes where like everybody is just going along and doing the right thing. And then here here comes Amiri Baraka and just lays it all out. And I go, oh, (laughs) that's it. But Dorothy Wong's book, I think if you had to put it in a nutshell is and I'm sure it's not the only one who does this, but she talks about or I think at this point today, many of us are really familiar with the concept of structural racism in society, in housing and education and healthcare and all these kinds of inequality. And we're starting to recognize, we collectively are starting to see the ways in which it's structural. And so one might go along thinking that they are not racist because they are not using the N-word is still participating in a structurally racist society. And and I think what what Dorothy's book did was just give the literary version of that understanding and unpack the ways in which the racism was structural and specifically to talk about it in the context of Asian poets, which I just simply hadn't read and I hadn't seen what that discussion looked like. I didn't know what it would mean. And and it's not it's not that the argument is specific to those specific writers that she discussed. She just kind of models it and then you can apply it to everything you read. And I think I said somewhere that it changed the way I look at my own writing or no, you just said it. <laughs> you mentioned that I realized I wasn't that white. And that's that's really funny, right? It's really funny to be like, oh, what? I'm not white. And <laughs> I'm, I've lived in this body all my life. I remember my teenage years of trying desperately to make myself as white as I could, whatever that meant. Usually it was about bleaching my hair. And, and I did look back. I, I think one of the most visible examples of it is a very early book of mine called nothing fictional but the accuracy or arrangement she and that she is in the title and then never again in the whole book is there a subject like the whole book consists of these predicate clauses and so every every utterance begins with a verb and it's presuming that that she in the title is the subject but i remove it from every single component of the book And I thought, actually, that's a feature of Japanese language that you don't have to have a subject and you have, you you know, you can just say went to the store or had a hamburger instead of I had a hamburger or you had a hamburger. Like you don't have to 
articulate that. And I was kind of enacting that language or that grammatical feature in the course of a whole book. And, and you know, they're just endless examples of where I can point to or in the um, in my book called the ants. This is not structural, but in that book, the very first poem is it starts out with like going to eat Chinese people and to to think about a poem about eating Chinese people written by a Japanese person is terribly race inflected mm -hmm. and the poem ends with me the poem ends with uh with the speaker saying something about how the aliens are going to eat all of us anyway and we shouldn't be surprised I don't know if that redeems the poem but it's like there's so much race <laughs> in so many places that I just wasn't really seeing before well thinking about Dorothy Wong being able to articulate, being able to say something that you couldn't yet say and recognizing it was something true for you. I would like to spend the rest of our time with mouths, both mouths as physical things, as the place of appetites and also as sites of speech and language. As an entryway, I was hoping you would read us the same selection from Say Translation as Art that John Keane, who just won the National Book Award in Poetry, um, <laughs> chose to read when you both were celebrating Kate Briggs. His, his choice of reading you was this uh, excerpt. Say vomit, say gagging, say choking translation, say I spent the entire summer of 2020 with low-grade fever and endless nausea, say this vomit-inducing country translation, say my younger body drinking alcohol, body rejecting even a small amount by vomiting. They say women have trouble saying no. I envied my body's clarity in vomit translation. Say race and racism, quiet translation of, say in Asia I learned to better understand it, to talk freely, say in 2017 I returned to where I am from and learn anew how to speak, how not to say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, say translating myself into silence, into poetry, say a book full of translated vomit, gagging, choking, say in the before of translation is silence say in the after of translation is silence thinking of this reading and that you also have a book called mouth eats color and that many many of the some girls poems are about eating such as girl a's peanuts and girl d's mouthful 10 girls in a bag of potato chips some girls fight inside a bag of cheetos and girl soup, and then in pink waves, lines like, I need a constant morning, a kick in my mouth and coffee, a fullness and mouth for two, or I steal crumbs from your mouth to bake my own bread, and then many variations of being kicked in the mouth in pink waves. <laughs> what, what, what's going on for you uh, about mouths? Um, mm. and vomit translation, mm. or not even in relation to vomit translation, but we return often across books to mouths. I often seem to have food feature in my work. Often the characters or humans, humanoids, are 
in food or they're trapped in food or they're they're moving inside bodies or there's something about the way the girls um i don't know i guess this is this is just one reading and my reading i'm not sure if it's the best reading but i think there's some kind of infiltration going on and maybe it's this kind of idealistic sort of or not idealistic but kind of groping for the answer when we hate the world and we want to change it and the question is whether you go inside and change it from the inside or just blow it up and take it apart and start all over and there's something about like food and eating and consumption and and infiltrating that space of or hiding in the food to get to the to get to the the bodies of power um maybe this doesn't make sense but i think there is something about hiding and something about food being a typically domestically female gendered activity and the desire to to question those internal and external boundaries or spaces or what have you um well to speak to vomit i started writing the poems in some girls walk into the country they are from not long after i think it was right around the inauguration in 2017 so i did feel nauseous as many did about the president being inaugurated at that time and I felt a distinctly female nausea in that moment. And so I, I wrote a, a whole bunch of vomit poems and only a handful of them are in the book. <laughs> Some of them were just not great poems and I I discarded them. But um, there is an interest in the mouth as the organ of so many functions, including speech, but also including intimacy and kissing and connecting and sensing that we you know the mouth it can sense flavor but also temperature and texture and there's a lot of sensory activity that happens in the mouth and there's also an interest in consumption or being consumed and i think one or the other i think it's maybe in conversation with those those other conversations about the margin and the center and Don Miche has a great line about the margin consumes the center and becomes the center and and that sort of eating or getting eaten, I think is a theme. In pink waves there's there's an eating that's part of the performance there's a, there's a little gift card to a local restaurant that got left hanging by a relationship and that needed to be consumed and i could only consume that actual thing in performance i don't know the mouth is it's it's just endlessly fascinating to me because it's it's vulnerable and it's tender and it's powerful and it's it it's got so much potential to be um venomous and harsh and you know, inflict pain through language or through speech acts while also being all these other things that are softer and kinder and gentle. I think in Pink Waves, when I wrote that, I was feeling 
kicked or kicked around by some circumstance that I didn't agree with. I was wanting to write to an injustice that I felt, but I didn't, I didn't care to address the injustice directly because I don't think it's, um, well, I just didn't, I just didn't want to, I think it's too personal and too, and also maybe too painful because there's an anticipation of sort of common responses to X, Y, Z. And I'm noticing that around grief in general right now, that if you're grieving X, Y, Z, there's a common formula or algorithm through which people tend to interpret and judge your grief, no matter, you know, what their intention, it just kind of happens. And so, so there are certain kinds of loss that are hard to reconcile. And there are certain kinds of content that are difficult to speak. And so, so the writing is my mouth for me. It's, it's a way of talking and talking back in a way that I don't feel I have access to otherwise. Well, thinking about a fullness and mouth for two, which you say in, in Pink Waves, I want to connect that to what you read of Johannes Jorensen's transgressive circulation for that event with Kate and also Kate's response to it. This is roughly what you read with me transcribing from the video, so it may not be perfect. My apologies to Johannes. Foreign texts are not just threatening because they bring foreign ideas into the target culture. They may in fact ruin the entire system of literature through sheer excess. Translation may make too many texts so that we may not be able to tell the good from the bad, and thus we may not be able to sell it. Translation as a battalion engine. Translation, like poetry, creates waste. I love that quote. And when I think of you choosing these lines to highlight about excess and waste, and maybe the system being broken by too many texts, I also think about the multilingualisms in your texts, too many tongues, um, too many tongues in the mouth. But I think about how your texts also have too many translators. Um, <laughs> and I think how the translators are too present and apparent. And I think about Kate Briggs's comments about how with any translation, there's too much in the sense that there are too many bodies between the text and the reader that the translator's body, even in the most normative sense, is seen as an intrusion between the reader and the experience rather than as a conduit. And perhaps this is why publishers want to keep the names of translators off the cover to not remind the reader of the mediation occurring through too many bodies. But I also think of Fred Moten's blurb that I read at the beginning, which nods to excess when he says, Sawako Nakayasu takes the measure of the enjoyment we derive from sensing and making sense of this wasteland of bandwidth and access. And definitely Pink Waves feels like an endless ocean of waves. There's one point in the poem where you once again return to the mouth saying, I fail like a fullness and mouth for two. And then later in that stanza, you have the phrase, incontinental embodiment and i love that phrase <laughs> continental giving the sense of this immenseness but incontinental an absence of control a leakage perhaps related to this creating of waste of johannes's book 
But again, thinking back to say vomit, say gagging, say choking translation, and then this incontinental embodiment. I don't know if this brings up anything for you. <laughs> it brings up Carolee Schneeman. <laughs> well, you know, we've we've talked about all these bodily fluids, let's say, and things that are spewed out of a physicality. And I think about how certain artists you encounter at a young age when you don't know anything, when you know so little about art and the world. And Carolee Schneeman gave a reading at UCSD and she lay across some benches and kind of wriggled around and said some things that I can't recall at this point. But that was how I discovered her was kind of horizontally performing herself in a space of a poetry reading. And then I came around to see the performance pieces that she was well known for, like the, I forget what it was called, the scroll that comes out of her vagina and meat joy and kind of rolling around in these pieces of meat and, and a fleshiness that I think has been a major part of my poetics. So much so that when you mention what Kate said about all these bodies that get in the way or that mediate the space between a writer coming up with the words and a reader receiving the words, there are a lot of bodies and there are a lot of bodies that the industry makes invisible. And I think this actually could be what I really loved about my amateurish attempt to make film was that making film consists of so many bodies and everything I love about making a poem is made through the actual actions of people in space together. It's a performance and it's a documentation of a performance, but moving through all these bodies creates this shared communal sensibility that you have to communicate in order for the whole team to bring it together into that product. And in poetry, you're doing all of those things, but inside your mind, and it's a performance inside the mind, the way I, I would characterize it. And, and I think Gabrielle Seville does some of that too in her performance writing. And this is part of what really attracted me to some of the things that she does in her texts, where she's inviting you to recreate the performance inside your mind. But I also want to go back to what Johannes was saying about excess and translation making too many. And if there are too many, then the implication is that there's no longer an authentic, there's no longer the best. And all of those values that allow for something to be sellable or marketable fall away. And then what we're left with is ourselves, our bodies, making and being and doing art, which feels utopian. It feels amateurish. It feels uh, pleasurable and worthy of being on its own in a culture that doesn't really value people doing things for ple just for pleasure or without a a product in mind or, you know, or even just in terms of heteronormativity and the, the procreative purpose of being in a relationship or a marriage that um, 
that Paul Preciado book we talked about is it's all it's it's one giant manifesto for the dildo and that's really interesting as an artificial organ of sexuality and so there's there's a way in which a lot of these values that feel normal and naturalized and common and common sense in terms of translation and in terms of getting it right as if there's one right answer i think is all in conversation and pointing to similar things. Well, my my last question, which is a question we're not going to, I know we have a time constraint, we're not going to have time to answer, <laughs> um, but it, it's fitting that we're not going to have an answer to it because my question <laughs> is about silence and it's about biting one's tongue and refusal. Because uh, I think about Carolyn Bergvall in, in the poem talk about you discussing reading some girls and the delight for her and finding herself on the edge of what she knows of what she can know when she comes across poems and languages that she can't read. But then even then staying with the poem, finding meanings and patterns if she stays with what she doesn't know. And I know not all readers are going to be Carolyn Bergvall, of course. Um, in that book, there's an excess of translation and excess of translators but at any given time, a given reader will be outside of a given page of that book, unable to create meaning. And this isn't so much the case in pink waves, though. Perhaps we could say the wave structure, the excessiveness of the waves, the overabundance of sources, of voices, might make it so we're washed into and out of meaning in this book, too. But I also think of Dami Che's poetics of refusal, of refusing to translate with regards to certain things too. And, and I know we're not going, we're going to refuse. We're going to refuse to talk about this. But I want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to answer? <laughs> I want to say something. Um, I don't know if this is directly about silence, but I was thinking about how Pink Waves tries to or attempts to make meaning emerge out of its own repetitions and reconfigurations. So there are three parts to it. It's in this ABA format where there are three sections um, that where the, the second A mirrors the first A. There's a B section where it's taking the same materials but moving in a different direction. So I'm I'm attempting in that book to, um, let's say we enter it without having anything shared, without having a shared background or story or content, but to build something together with the reader in which here come these lines, they come back again, but they're different because they're positioned differently. They're different because they're recombined over the course of the book. So I'm, I'm curious about and I think this goes back to my interest in syntax and what can syntax hold? So what can I make with this set of content ideas, let's say, and these source materials and the syntax and how generous or generative is the syntax when you allow that form to dictate how the language comes back and when it's repeated, it's not repeated in the same way, even though it might even be the same words, it has a different uh, resonance because of what's before or after it. 
and what that does to an experience of moving through text over time. And so this is a book where I'm interested in what happens over the course of reading the whole book front to back. If you were to read it in one sitting, then my hope is that it creates something a little bit akin to something you might more often experience in music where you're hearing the element, I'm, I'm thinking of like large symphonic pieces like Mahler or something where you have these motifs and the elements that come back, but come back differently with different instrumentation and what might that look like in language. So I'm, maybe I didn't even talk about silence now. I strayed. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> in anti-silence, let's, um, let's hear another little brief section from Pink Waves to go out. Okay. So this is section A prime, eight. It was a wave, just the waves, the outer sidewalk on my sleeve. She was a blue-green function. She happened to fall. She pitched the wrong deep. It costs money to get to the bottom of things. The formal struggle of a vertical field of grass, endless and unmarked, and I've no trouble with that. Now I am at odds with myself and my feet are tied. I ask you who said what? Black Dada was written by Adam Pendleton. The Black Dada Reader is a collage by Adam Pendleton in the form of a book. Black Dada is not mine, but I undertake experiments in joy. Black Dada made this book. It crashes into my performance. Tuesday, May 14, 2019, 11.50 a.m. Can you hold it, Netup? Do you hear it, Pongyo? Is it hard enough, Eugene? Do you like it? Maya Bjornsson came and went, but left something behind. Do you want it? Do you want more, Kaibigan? Is this the right angle, Van? Is it here, Chingu? Are you breathing, Vrend? Is it you, Arkadash? Are you here, friend? Does it hold to the bounds of the circumstance? Is it too heavy in light of the actual transgression? What about dinner tonight? Fish or cigarettes for later? Or coffee? Fog of ours. I cannot claim Black Dada, but I know that certain uses of the word love is a trap. Internal findings move me close to the bedroom window. I am on the lookout for approaching oceans. Art in institutions, institutions in art. Slacken and retreat, the new register upon which we vote. Music was invented by children to quickly identify who we should love. One can aspire to be either children or sonatas. Back in the dirt, aesthetically real flowers. Back in the dirt, finite political differences. Back in the dirt, all the dirt I have loved. Back in the dirt, bring a flower when you visit. I will fix it for you. You, 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 night, you, you. That is what she said. I need you to see it, want it, super slowly and resolutely. I need a lower resolution. I need the impending waves to wash away the moat already. I need to enter the alley where we will settle our debts. I need your lilting nocturne to finish marking up the map of my body. 
In the late 1960s, everybody had a manifesto to write. In 1967, Solanas published her scum and Lewitt his paragraphs. In 68, Sirhan Sirhan shot Bobby Kennedy. 2019, I sit here alone with the fires I love. These are the waves. I pursue my better self. White waves, black waves. In 1970, Irina Dunn shaved her head. In 1960, the poem grew legs. Give women more money, not hats. I've got data like a river, like a fountain. Love like a data in my soul, in my soul. The 1960s are hungry ghosts loitering around the hot bosom of the 2010s. I still like Stein, but her ego just smacked me in the face. Seemingly large beauty or glitter or the dark whip of power. In the wake of the wake of accumulated war, never ending war. Mass breathing holes. Dislocation indignation. Burnt confabulation. Yo Americano. Conceptual artists do not hold hands. They do not have hands, not in that way. Conceptual artists do not march. They do not have feet and legs, not in that way. Conceptual artists do not make faces. They do not have feelings, not in that way. History is a cube in the foreground. I am not a conceptual artist. You, 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 fire. Crashing one wave after another. Thank you, Sawako. I had a great time sp spending all this time with you today. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it so much. We are talking today to Sawako Nakayasu about her latest book, Pink Waves from Omnidon. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Sawako's work at sawakonakayasu.net. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a supporter. One possible perk is the ever-growing bonus audio archive with supplemental material from Jory Graham, Dion Brand, Rosemary Waldrop, Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, Laylee Long Soldier, Arthur Z, Forrest Gander, and many others. This is just one possible reason to join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Join our brainstorm of future guests, receive the supplementary resources with each conversation, and choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, from out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, to writing consultations, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, 
Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 